0: Today is September 21st, 2022. Welcome to Native Calgaria. Hi, my name is Red Thunder Woman. My married English name is Michelle Robinson, and I use she and her pronouns. I'm speaking to you on the lands of the Nitsitapi, which is the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot south of the U.S.-Canadian border are the Blackfeet, and north of the border are the Siksika, Gunai, and Blagani of the Confederacy. These lands are Treaty 7, signed September 22, 1877, with signatures that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Wesley Chinnake, and Verspawn Nations of the Stoney, and the Dene from Sutina. I acknowledge all First Nation, Metis, Inuit status and non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. All non-indigenous are treaty partners with the government signing on your behalf. It's important to understand that the straight agenda and gendered violence was and is forced on these lands by Christian outsiders. Land acknowledgements are critical for creating a safer space for indigenous, as well as honoring the host as a guest and acknowledging your role as a treaty partner in a so-called time of reconciliation. It's important that land acknowledgements have meaning. I encourage all to introduce themselves with their acknowledgement of their ancestors' story of displacement, how you perceive your role as a treaty partner, a citizen of Canada, a refugee, or other land displacement, so we as Indigenous people know how safe you are to be around. If you don't know how to pronounce your local Indigenous nation's name, won't use your pronouns, won't say your story of origin, won't acknowledge stolen lands, economic oppression, your role in reconciliation, I determine how safe you are to be around my community, my family, and myself. Understanding land acknowledgements and their importance is Indigenous 101, because it immediately addresses colonialism, oppression dynamics, broken treaties, and lies taught today in Canadian schools nationally. That's why settlers and those who call themselves Native Calgarians, or whatever town you're from, show me, you have no Indigenous 101 understanding. Jesse Wente's book Unreconciled, especially chapters 13, pages 180 to 181, explain it perfectly. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Great Bear Lake tribe in Treaty 11. My people wore rabbit skin, so it's been referred to as the land of the Hare people. I'm a native to Turtle Island, and my Dene Nation is a visitor to this area of Kincho in Dehay, in Satu Dene, many, many big dog town, named after the Calgary Stampede. I was born in Calgary, or in Blackfoot, Arkansas, as Michelle Elliott, another English name that's afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavy Dene, or Satu Dene, for my Indian Act and Post status card by the Canadian government. It says, yellow Nized Dene, through my father. I'm a daughter of the Mayflower and a daughter of the American Revolution while having a Canadian Indian Act and Post status card, which is a colonial construct by Canadian policies meant to divide Indigenous people's inherent rights Indigenous Two-Spirit or the Indigenous 2 LGBTQ plus community and Indigenous women are at the bottom of the Canadian socio-economic ladder because of colonial trauma and post-poverty, racism, gendered violence, and land theft. That's part of policy. As a Denning woman who has attempted to run after joining harmful colonial parties, spent money to be at expensive conventions, left my home to travel to those conventions just to vote on incomplete policies that still allow incarceration, denial of justice, denial of health services, denial of real education, racism, colonial trauma, and genocide of Indigenous and Black peoples. I have worked to continue efforts to advocate for and attempt to look within these systems meant to harm me and my community. I want to say, have a great day, have a great long weekend. But I know that my community is dying from suicide, Uh, drug policies, systems both systems of imposed Christian-based drug policies, abstinence programming, private health care, justice systems built on the racism, land theft, and imposed British constructs that continue genocide on Indigenous peoples. Every day I look in the news and I see the names of people who um, have clear injustice happen to them. And I don't see the outrage that I see in other places around the world. I think right now about all those people that are dying from overdose, from suicide, from an injustice system. And I want to honor them. I help think of them. And I want to honor their lives, and I want those who are listening to see your role in the importance of stopping this harm, and as a citizen, see your role in reconciliation, too. I know that this podcast, it's uh, just after the Treaty 7 anniversary, mm-hmm. and it's also um, just before Truth and Reconciliation Day, and so this will be the one time people listen to this one particular episode one time a year. Because they, then they're reconciling, and that is better than nothing, 100%. But I just wish that people see that uh, reconciliation is a commitment to decolonizing 365 days of the year and 366 on loop years. <laughs> um, I honor the Blackfoot and the elders as they've been kind to me on my Red Road journey. Elder Red Crane taught me how to pronounce my spirit name in Blackfoot, and Leonard Kenny taught me how to pronounce my name in Satu Dene. My humblest apologies to the Blackfoot and Dene elders and language keepers as I try to learn proper pronunciation. Any mistakes or misinterpretations will be on me. I encourage questions so that misunderstandings can be cleared up as soon as possible. I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous. I just share my journey as I walk the red road. I've been accused of not being kind while surviving genocide. Yet I give free book clubs, podcasts and info on my social media for years as have many others. So at this point, it is willful to be ignorant on these issues. My patron account is Native Calgarian where you can pledge and support. Thank you previous donors for already showing your support. If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you. To those who cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com. Send in your comments or your questions. Also giving a review helps whatever medium you're listening from. I have a YouTube channel that you can go and subscribe. You go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcasts and pin posts on social media. So today we're so lucky to have our to join us today. I've seen uh, this incredible Twitter uh, thread and while I try to retweet almost everything he posts, you know, it, we just need to talk about what you posted today. So uh, why don't you introduce yourself and, and we'll go from there.
1: Thanks so much, Michelle. Um, my name's Ewan Thompson. I'm the Executive Director at Each and Every Businesses for Harm Reduction, which is a new coalition that started up a couple of years ago. Um, I'm a voluntary settler here in Mokinstas, Calgary. Uh, and these are the lands of the Stoney, Nakota, Sutina, Dene, uh, Métis Region 3, and, and the Blackfoot Confederacy. Among them, the Siksika, uh, Pikani, Ghana, and the Blackfeet south of the border. Um, under Treaty 7, which I, I think has been tarnished pretty severely through uh, things like drug policy, um, which has created, you know, a, a, a real um, serious problem with with incarceration and and now what we're seeing is drug poisoning um, through the ages uh, it's gotten worse and worse and worse and and now we're in a situation where we're trying to. Um, you know we're seeing we're seeing this with this crisis play out on in so many fronts um, in so many communities um, and. Uh, and yet, uh, indigenous people here in Alberta are are still at seven times higher risk of of death from from this than than the non-indigenous Albertans. So um, this is, uh, this is really kind of part of my my commitment to um, undoing the harms of 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 past colonialism and uh, rectifying Treaty seven so that hopefully um, there's a, a day where we can all feel like um, people are being treated equally here. Um, so what what I'm really gonna show today is is a story about how the toxic drug supply in Alberta is playing out at the ground level, how people are trying to manage the the costs of prohibition, um, the the damage that has been inflicted by bad drug policy across the country um, that is just really getting worse and worse here in Alberta. Um, we have a government that, Refuses to look at the data, uh, and so one of my missions here really is is to force them to, and and to um, get enough people looking and and accepting the facts um, that that the government can no longer ignore them and, and has to act in a way that is in keeping with with evidence based practice and and humane practice. Um, so yeah, do you want me to jump in with that, or do you do you want to go off in another?
0: No, oh, that sounds great. Let's let's jump into what you posted today so that we can talk about it, because what I want to explain to my viewers really is, you know, just as we had really great doctors trying to break down some of the COVID-19 data, whether it was about vaccines, whether it was about, you know, hospitalization rates, I think what the work you do is critical for Alberta, because it really um, breaks down the data of what is happening here, as opposed to you know, the conservative, um, speak that I hear that I know is not reflecting any of this data, but also any of the real solutions, especially with a harm reduction lens, because they're so anti-harm reduction when the truth is, um, you have the data to prove that's the, that it's scientific. It's, it's evidence-based. I, I can't believe the ideology we have to educate here.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And the ideology, um, Unfortunately, they, they've hijacked the word recovery, I think, and, and kind of um, appropriated it in a way that does not really reflect what people who support harm reduction really believe. I think, you know, harm reduction uh, it is a way to help people to recovery in, in whatever way they define recovery for themselves. And unfortunately, I think what we've got is is an ideology that Imposes a definition of recovery, which is strict abstinence from these substances that, that we as a society have designated as bad and harmful, um, while permitting other types of substances. You know, tobacco, alcohol, cannabis, um, sugar, whatever you name it, um, that these are okay. Um, and, and what it has really done is is created. Uh, a mechanism by which we can structure classes and 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 maintain racial disparities and, and all these things that, that we're seeing play out. Um, Unfortunately,
0: we had to do a second take. And in the first take, you did such a great job of giving a bit of a historical background about some of the original drug policies being rooted in racism. Would you mind trying to encapsulate that again? Yeah,
1: sure thing. Yeah, this is a really important point for for anybody that's interested in learning about what what the drug policy, what the drug poisoning crisis is really about. It's rooted in bad drug policy. It's rooted in um, it's rooted in the harms of prohibition. And and we've seen drug prohibition play out all the way back to 1884 when there was uh, an, an amendment to the Indian Act. Of 1970, of 1876 whereby uh indigenous people were no longer allowed to consume or buy alcohol um and anybody caught selling to them was uh was considered a bootlegger and um and so this created uh, a means by which the rcmp could really round people up and and push them back into their community you know these these small communities that they'd been segregated onto um, that we we call reserves nowadays um, which is just uh, another way of, of saying that we created and structured an apartheid state around drug policy. Um, and in 1908, uh, we did, we used it again. We we went after um, the Chinese um, railroad workers who who had you know laid their lives on the line in a lot of ways to to get that um, infrastructure built across this country and all of the harms that came with that as well um that that is a whole, again a whole other conversation um and uh and so 1908 came along and and Chinese workers were now excluded from the labor market in a lot of ways uh because of the opium laws that were brought in um, cocaine followed soon after that uh, we've we know we did canna- cannabis at some point in the 30s um and uh, and each of these was really structured in a way that would help exclude uh different uh, racial racialized peoples and and um, And again, create that, that means for a a white supremacist class structure in this country, and and we're living that today. Um, We're just seeing the worst effects of all of that culminate in the drug poisoning crisis, uh, in which Indigenous people are seven times more likely to die um, than than non-Indigenous people in Alberta, um, five times in BC. So so that's kind of the rough history of drug policy, that there's a lot going on there. There's, There's involvement from KKK there's there's uh, you know there's the whole history of bootlegging there's alcohol prohibition in there as well from across society um, and all kinds of things you can get into but. uh, Those are those are kind of the 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 key coals notes and um, and it leads us to where we are today, where um, the drug poison crisis is claiming um, more young lives than than anything else in our society, this is the single biggest driver of reduced life expectancy in Alberta um, and. Uh, again, it's it's falling most heavily on on Indigenous people here in Alberta, and I'm almost reluctant to point that out in a way because we know from the data that our society is so racist that um, just saying that will will make a lot of people tune out. They'll say, "Okay, that's not a problem that that I need to help address." Unfortunately, and uh, and that's you know that's pretty well established now in the states with with race based data um, around incarceration and, and drug poisoning and so
0: on. But ironically, Alberta has always had a problem with drugs. Um, I remember being in Fort McMurray and Sylvan Lake, and we've always talked about how oil field brings, you know, sex and drugs um, as a ramification of oil money and exploitation of the of the land. So I didn't really see that properly reflected. I'm not going to lie in the national inquiry, but they do touch it. Don't get me wrong. But um, for folks who were born and raised in Alberta, lived here, you know, like it, whether it was cocaine, <laughs> whether it was, um, uh, heroin, other drugs. I mean, there's always been problems with, uh, you know, access money and then there being uh, sex addiction, drug addiction, um, gambling addictions as well here in Alberta. And we just, we never want to talk about it because we're just a good old Christian little place. Right. And, and it's like, well, but we do have our problems and, um, and this is for the white community and I say that because I was forced like many indigenous people uh, I was raised white uh, raised to be uh, you know in denial of our non-indigenous lineage Um, all of those things I I was I was raised to be white so um, in the white community in a predominantly white community that I grew up in Sylvan Lake I mean lots of folks had addiction issues lots of folks and uh, and cannabis was still illegal right like it's so funny, there's been such a huge switch now that cannabis is legal. And uh, I'm, I couldn't be happier about it. Frankly, I think that, uh, you know, our kids are, are they're not turning to the illegal underground, um, you know, world in order to get cannabis. Um, not not now, anyway. So, you know, that that's a huge win for me as a parent, but that bigger picture, I, I want to see obviously way less um, incarcerations of cannabis-related incarcerations, because it's just ridiculous for it to have been outlawed anyway, again, based on racism. Um, anyway, I don't mean to to go on a tangent, but I did want to point out that Alberta has always had a problem with addiction, always.
1: Absolutely, and it's been, uh, I think it's, it's inherent, it's inherent to to capitalist design Um, people get exploited and when people are exploited they suffer trauma and when they suffer trauma they turn to drugs and there's also the point that you know people across cultures have have always used drugs of some sort you know we've had drugs um, in like every culture i've ever heard of in in, on planet earth has has used some form of of a drug or another Um, and uh and it's really only when we try to clamp down on that use and and uh wipe it from society and drive it into these underground unregulated markets that, that they really became uh, very dangerous. Um, sure, there, there's inherent danger in any substance. You can consume uh, too much water, you can consume too much of anything, and uh, and the dose makes the poison, as, as a lot of toxicologists will tell you. Um, so yeah, people can use, I, I, I believe people can use any substance responsibly, uh, But but we are in a situation where uh, our society's imposing a lot of,
0: a lot of hurt on
1: people. And, uh, and I always look at, you know, folks who are experiencing homelessness, um, you know, using drugs is a pretty rational response to that sort of situation, if that's not where you want to be. And, uh, and so, you know, with that, I, I guess, you know, we're so underserviced in this province, you know, um, I, I made a point the other day, where I I, I pointed out that, um, it took Alberta. So, you know, we we had been discussing how Insight just turned 19. The the first supervised consumption site in North America in Vancouver turned 19 yesterday. Um, it then took Alberta another 15 years to open just one site, the first one in in Calgary, SafeWorks. And uh, you know, the, uh, to their credit, the NDP government uh, then opened uh, six more and had two more in planning within two years. And uh, the current government oh, that, and
0: I'll also yeah. say, and shout out to the federal government for allowing that as well, because they were yeah. the ones who did that work. And I have to say that as a, a federal liberal.
1: Absolutely, yeah. So so these things happened in a climate that, that was pretty friendly to harm reduction overall. It became friendly to harm reduction during, during the tenure of that provincial government. Um, there was a lot of changed minds, I think, during that period from everything I've heard. And and then the new government took power and they immediately canceled sites. They immediately went to work trying to close down sites. And um, it was all about this idea that uh, prosperity had to come before compassion, as if supervised consumption sites even hurt prosperity in some way, uh, which is absolutely ridiculous. There's, there's no evidence for that.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so I, I, yeah, so I, I think what I would like to focus a little bit on today is is some of the new stuff that's come along, and, and I do need to acknowledge that um, y- you know there's only so much that data alone can do. Where we are fighting an ideological battle here against a, a government that is deeply committed to their ideology around class structure and allow around uh, the mechanisms needed to maintain that class structure. Um, so you know these data are important for for you and I and for folks. Uh, that do this kind of advocacy work but it it needs to be a means to an end we need to use these data to bring more people and to convince our friends and family that this is worth acting on and and if it doesn't result in that sort of thing in in growing the movement in creating a little bit of a cyclone that the government now has to contend with then then it's not gonna it's not worth anything so so please uh, you know listeners please do something with with what you're gonna learn here today Um, yeah go ahead
0: Yeah, no, I'm really happy. The uh, biggest conversation I try to have with people is just having their naloxone kit or if you're First Nation, have Narcans and have them laying around like you would a first aid kit and give them away freely. Um, You know, I know the pharmacists are shocked that I can give away seven Narcan a week, but I mean, I see the people there. If I stop at a traffic light, there's somebody who needs a Narcan. If I'm on the C train, there's someone who needs a Narcan. Like, it's just shocking to me how not every single person is not giving away a Narcan or Naloxone a day and that's kind of where I start that conversation in real life with people about you know hey do you know what this is do you know how to use it much like when my husband and I used to scuba dive and we talked about um that there was this machine that would help hearts if people were having a heart attack a defibrillator Mm -hmm. And um, now they're actually quite commonplace, but they weren't always. And ironically, Alberta is one of the best places to have them because. Every office um, building, every tower, almost every one of them have them at the uh, bottom of the stairs. So we knew, you know, if our uh, oil company executive was having a heart attack, that a defibrillator wasn't that far away. So, and that they make them so user friendly, uh, much like a Narcan, like you can't screw up a Narcan. <laughs> so, um, anyway, that's kind of where I like to start that conversation with folks because, uh, you know, even our grannies are passing away from opioid um, overdose and as long as you know the signs and you have uh, a Narcan or Naloxone kit close by, you can reverse it so that you can get that brain breathing again. So that's kind of where I start that conversation.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good, uh, that's a really good point in, The average person is so much more likely to use a Narcan kit nowadays than they already use an AED, a defibrillator, uh, or even just a first aid kit. You know, if you're walking around downtown frequently, um, your your Narcan kit contains a rescue breathing apparatus. Like, you're going to be able to save somebody's life at some point if you're doing that. And this business coalition that we've started up, um, you know, we've only got, we've got less than 200 members across Canada. We've already had nearly 10 businesses respond to poisonings and save lives that way, just because they carried naloxone on site, um, and that you know they they tell people that they carry naloxone on site, just make it obvious, make make it a welcome welcoming space for people. That's carry a your great naloxone point,
0: actually. Yeah. That that sticker you have behind you, it says naloxone on site. I actually did a door knock the other day, and one of our friends, or I can't remember their name offhand they had that right on their mailbox and I was like right on I I came up to the door all happy because I'm like this these are I'm with my people here and it turned out this this white woman came up and she was married to a First Nation man and they had uh, so they they knew all about it they knew all about you they knew all about the organization that you work with so you know it it was just a really really happy moment for me that like okay out of all the door knocks that I do here's one person that gets it.
1: Well, that's what we're talking about. You know, we gotta—it's a movement. We gotta yep. grow it. People, uh, people get it, and um, and and that's one really concrete way that you can that you can show you get it, and that you can uh, drill that into your own is is that, uh, you know, you're trained on naloxone and you're responsible to to respond if if you're there to do it. So, with that, um, so I think it's worth just talking a little bit about drug poisoning as a concept. Um, we, you know, it used to be referred to as overdose, uh, because it was really a situation where um, the drugs were relatively pure, people understood what they were taking most of the time, and it was pretty rare to see cross contamination, uh, you know, heroin into the cocaine supply, for example. Um, nowadays, that's not really true at all. There's, there's a lot of fentanyl around. Um, uh, fentanyl has replaced heroin almost entirely in the opioid supply, and um, so people are now experiencing what we would call poisonings because they're taking something in a lot of cases where, where they don't know what's in it. Um, and we don't have anywhere in Alberta that go and bring your drugs to actually check what might be in there. Um, so there could be fentanyl lur- lurking in there. There could be 10 times stronger carfentanyl lurking in there. There could be benzodiazepines. Um, which, which will knock you out for for a number of hours even after you've um, you've gone under from the opioids potentially. Um, so there's a lot of complexity now in the drug supply that, that wasn't there twenty or thirty years ago. And so we refer to these as drug poisonings. It's it's people basically being poisoned by substances that they don't know they're taking. And, and that's what's driving the crisis. The the toxicity of the drug supply, as we refer to it, is causing people to succumb to. Substances that they don't know are in, you know, within the substance that they're trying to take, Um, and and that creates these these extreme um, respiratory uh, distress situations and and other other problems. So um, we can use what we see inside our one supervised consumption site here in Calgary uh, as a a bit of a proxy for what's happening in the drug supply because again we don't have a good measure for this um, within within Canada uh, and particularly within Alberta. So looking at the number of people that walk through the doors um, and what you're seeing here in the orange line in this graph is is people using SafeWorks more and more and more as the years went on from December, 2017, when it opened uh, through to the pandemic, when it just collapsed. People's, people's you know, the, the usage rate of SafeWorks dropped cut in half and it, and it remained low until today. Um, so instead of, uh, 6,000 people showing up at the site every month, we now have about 3000 and by taking the number of people that go through the doors at SafeWorks and experience a drug poisoning, um, we can get what's called a, a drug poisoning rate. So that's a percentage of people that walk through the doors to use drugs and experience a poisoning or an overdose. And, and that number, um, also went up very, very fast. At the same time that the use rate of SafeWorks went down after COVID hit, the the poisoning rate went up extremely fast to the point uh, where about 8%, you know, roughly one in 12 people that walked through the doors were experiencing an overdose or a poisoning. So um, that hit its peak in December, it's since gone down. And so what I'm putting forward here within this graph is that um, we can use that overdose rate, that poisoning rate as a measure of how toxic the drug supply is. A lot of people said when COVID first hit that the borders seizing up was going to cause a real problem with, um, with drug distribution, with drug supply, that um, we're not getting clean, uh, pure versions of, of these drugs anymore. They're being cut with all kinds of things. They're being made by inexperienced people. They're being blended by inexperienced people. And, um, and everybody's just kind of trying to keep the white powder flowing, whatever that white powder might be. And so at the same time that, that people started having to use a loan um, after COVID hit, and they didn't have access as much to the supervised consumption site anymore, we saw this massive increase in drug toxicity. Um, so people were having to contend with that, uh, both of those factors at the same time, which drove a massive increase in death.
0: I like how you actually posted it on Twitter. It's already clear that when fentanyl started replacing heroin, hell broke loose and people began dying by the hundreds, now thousands. We know this. We don't need more data. Um, I thought that was such a great like, way to say it.
1: Yeah, it's that point. I think that um, there's only so much data that we can produce around this. It's uh, that uh, before it just doesn't become help. It's not helpful anymore. Um, Again, we're we're fighting an ideological battle, so it's important to keep that in mind, but I hope that that people do get something out of of these data. I think there is still a lot of ignorance around this stuff here in Alberta, Um, maybe not so much other places. So um, the big finding out of this was that when you take the death rate in Calgary, so you know, really restricting, constraining that geography to this one city where we have one supervised consumption site that, you know, a lot of people are visiting from, you know, from different parts of the city, but mostly from within about a kilometer of that site. People don't travel that far for supervised consumption, typically, Um, that if you look at the death rate in Calgary, it it was actually declining into 2019. it was down at around uh, below 20 deaths per month, which is still an unacceptable number, but it, it was quite low uh, relative to what it's at right now, which is, um, uh, well, it hit its peak in December in, um, at, at 60 or so, 65, and um, it's since dropped. And when you look at the drug poisoning rate at SafeWorks, it matches it almost perfectly. Um, when I took this and put it on, I put it on a sort of a scatter plot. So, you know, you're comparing the factors one against the other, um, every, every data point it, it fit very well statistically. Um, and so what we're seeing is, um, that the drug poisoning rate at SafeWorks, the number of people, the percentage of people that walk through the doors and experience a poisoning, um, matches the drug poisoning death rate in Calgary really well. Uh, which tells us that yes, this the drug poisoning rate at SafeWorks probably does represent a pretty good proxy for the toxicity of the drug supply. Um, so that, that's a really important point to remember as we start looking at the drug supply data that, that I that you know that you contacted me about to discuss here today. So that's kind of the the basis. Um, and so I'll, you know, I'll, I'll go through a couple of points here. Um, one is that, uh, a lot of people say, you know, when they're referring to the drug poisoning crisis, they like to say that this is an addiction crisis. Um, and yes, there, there absolutely is addiction. And just like you pointed out there, there always has been addiction. Um, it, it is a pervasive problem in our society. Uh, however you define addiction, I think it, it's always, you know, its definition is always shifting and the idea of, of what recovery means is also shifting, uh, ho- hopefully faster, um, you know, than it seems like it is, but, um. You know, what we need to what we need to do is just acknowledge that that we're not just facing an addiction crisis here and we can't solve this problem strictly through addiction treatment. Um, We're we're facing a a problem where people don't know what they're taking and the people that don't intend to stop taking drugs are not going to get anything out of addiction treatment, um, no matter how many times we send them through a program. So um, if addiction is not really driving unregulated drug poisoning, Um, We could actually flip the script and say less availability of regulated drugs is actually fueling the crisis, and this plays out pretty well in the data. These are um, Dina Hinshaw's own presentation data here, um, where we can see this idea of like overprescribing drugs um, really falls apart when you analyze it in Alberta. We had, um, uh, you know, uh, we had a big clampdown on prescribing uh, from 2016 moving forward um, where we're down about 30% from, from the peak in 2016. And during that time of, of prescribing opioids and during that time, the drug poisoning crisis has gone ballistic. We mm-hmm. have, you know, increased something like 6,000% over, um, you know, over the numbers we were seeing in, uh, of, of non-pharmaceutical drug poisoning deaths, um, since around that time. So it, we're really, uh, we're really dealing with something that's, that's not gonna be dealt with easily through uh, a strict focus on on addiction treatment. Um, While that could be helpful in some contexts, um, it's it's not the main driver and and over-prescribing certainly isn't the main driver Um, because if it were, then we should see uh, prescribing and drug poisoning moving in lockstep together, but they actually move into an inverse relationship. They're opposite Mm -hmm. to each other. Mm -hmm. So um, some of the key changes I point out in this thread is that uh, the drug supply um, in the drug supply is that we've seen fentanyl replace heroin. We've seen carfentanil creep its way into the um, into the drug supply and start to replace fentanyl. Um, it's a you know, it's a thousand times stronger than morphine. Fentanyl is you know something like 100 times. So so carfentanil is 10 times stronger than fentanyl even is. And we're having all these problems with fentanyl. Um, Fentanyl is also contaminating other drug classes. So sometimes you'll see fentanyl show up in cocaine or methamphetamine supplies. And also benzodiazepines are showing up in the fentanyl and opioid supply. So that these are you know, different levels of complexity and we're in a situation now where, where people have been introduced to drugs that they didn't really consent to being introduced to. They, they, you know Benzodiazepines are extremely physically addictive and withdrawing from them can kill you just like alcohol can. These are the only two drug classes I know of for which uh, withdrawal can be fatal. Um, Not so true for opioids, surprisingly. So um, you know, this is the the situation is getting more and more complex as years go by. Um, We, um, you know. We've got all this data. The government's got all this data. They're not doing anything about it. So what can we do as a community? Uh, I've pointed these things out. Like, You make sure that you're you're sharing this type of info with your family and friends. Um, Make sure that you're informing your local elected representative that if they don't do something about this, it's going to cost them. And then get to know who your local drug user union is. Um, Here in Alberta, it's AWARE. Um, there, there are lots of groups of people that interact with people who use drugs and, and unhoused folks. Um, you mentioned Bear Clan earlier, they're fantastic. Everybody should be donating to these types of organizations, Street Cats. Um, th- these organizations are out there um, in almost all cases doing volunteer work um, to, to try and, and just stop the, the trauma and the death that's happening in, in our communities. So we we really can't help them enough. Um,
0: Can I ask you um, one of the things that I plug at the end of my uh, podcast is the National Overdose Response Service one eight 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 number and the nors and or the doors and the brave app. Uh, Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on those?
1: Yeah, I think these are good tools. Um, We're not going to. We're not going to get out of this crisis using technology uh, because it's it's a crisis that's rooted in policy. It's bad policy, and and we can only throw so much technology at bad policy. Um, But I I will say, you know, uh, I I know people that use the Norse uh, system or or Brave app. uh, They're really, you know, they rely on it in some cases. And so, you know, if people are using it and it works for them, then that's fantastic. Um, But many people can't or won't. And and a lot of people don't have cell phones, um, so they, they don't even have that option. And a lot of people are in remote areas where an ambulance won't get to them in time if they if they have a poisoning, yeah. um, regardless of what the app is is buzzing at, at the uh, dispatcher. So, yeah, they have huge limitations, um, and and but they also have potential for for some people that live in cities um, and that have that kind of access. Mm-hmm. It's unfortunate that we're seeing all this play out at the same time as a massive ambulance crisis. Um, Our EMS system is in complete freefall and and as uh, Annie Yunker, journalist for the Edmonton Journal, um, revealed just back in July through a FOIP, uh, Freedom of Information, uh, document uh, access from the government, Drug poisoning now occupies 10% of ambulance dispatches in this province. Uh, so if we could deal with drug poisoning through better policy, then we could more or less alleviate this uh, the, the most acute parts of this uh, ambulance shortage that we're dealing with um, and, and help our, our, our paramedics you know, get through um, some of this moral injury and, and really just some of the overwork that they're experiencing right now by cutting that 10% off the top. Okay, so this is uh, this is a graph I showed before, that, like it's that Calgary deaths and the drug poisoning rate. So I just wanted to refresh people on it. Like the deaths move in lock st- step with the poisoning rate that we see at the Calgary SafeWorks inside those doors. And I'm gonna point out one more time that nobody has ever died of a drug poisoning inside of a supervised consumption site anywhere in the entire world. So, um,
0: Not having them is so awful, but you know, I remember, When Ralph Klein cut um, all the funding for uh, mental health and we knew a lot of folks on AISH were going to be homeless, like I'll never understand how, um, you know, a group of people who consider themselves good stock Christians would ever consent to any of that because morally and ethically, it's the wrong thing to do. People who can't, who aren't in the position to be able to take care of themselves need that support. And to cut those services, like I'll never understand how everybody was okay with that.
1: Yeah, um, I I then go into talking about the um, the Left Bridge Arches site and how uh, it was closed down by on phony claims of financial impropriety. Um, this is a story that's been well documented at this point. But Alana Smith wrote a good piece. Uh, year year or two ago uh, about this. and uh, just really kind of putting putting this whole thing to bed that like the government was out to close this site down from early on um, in Lethbridge. and sadly, it, it was the only site in in Alberta that had inhalation room. Um, so people could go in and smoke or or snort drugs. Um, right now, we don't have a place where people can smoke um, any drugs in Alberta. And, and this was also the busiest supervised consumption site in the entire continent. So that, that's, that was closed down. Um, and, and what I get to next here is that really getting into um, this, this, like, like the ideas around how mortality is counted in Alberta. How, how do we look at drug poisoning um, from a medical examiner standpoint? Um, and the first thing I point out is that in Alberta in 2021, we had 3,300 Unsolved deaths, um, unattributed cause of death, um, and that number exploded off of about 1,500 in 2020 and about 500 in both of 2019 and 2018. So there weren't any of these numbers back in 2016, 2017. They were zero. People, you know, people knew why people were dying back then, and and this number has just grown every year since. Uh, so this points to a, a severe um, resource shortfall in the medical examiner's office and and this should be huge for people like 30 3300 um unknown deaths in alberta is the leading cause of death in alberta right now
0: well and i ran municipally in 2017 so that would have been around the time that we knew that this was starting and i i had harm reduction right on my campaign sign right because 2017 we knew it was starting and we didn't have the proper data. I remember Dr. Swan speaking very specifically about the medical examiners having, like, it took over a year to figure out if it was a drug-related death. And we were like, we've got to figure out how to close that gap. And we were having these conversations in 2017. Mm-hmm. So, like, I totally understand where you're coming from with these stats because it, the, the truth is it wasn't there. Yeah. Yeah, it,
1: you know, the, the drug poisoning rate has climbed really considerably through that period, um, but the unknown causes of death has has exploded as well, and so I think the, the point being, um, when all this, you know, when the dust settles on this and people understand what these 3,300 uh, this year, last year, 1,500 the year before, uh, and so on, what, when they finally figure out what these deaths were from, it's going to be down to COVID and drug poisoning and maybe a couple other causes. But, you know, these are not politically convenient modes of death, right? Um, the, the government, you know, for all intents and purposes, doesn't want people to know that that's how people are dying. And so the, the drug poisoning numbers are an underestimate, if anything, of of, uh, of reality. Um, and same with COVID. So, um, you know, looking at, at, at like how the drug supply is changing and how it relates to death is really where where the, the ideas start to flow here um, now that we've kind of touched down on how medical examiner um, work is done. Um, so we've got a, a graph here showing that fentanyl and, and total drug poisoning deaths in Alberta um, move together. So as, as fentanyl, it shows up in more and more samples of illegal police seized drugs, so police drug busts, um, the deaths also increase alongside it. And it's not a perfect relationship, but it's pretty close. Um, and what it, what it tells us is that, you know, because fentanyl occupies such a big portion of, of the percentage of deaths, um, it, it really is occupying that space uh, that um, that is helping to drive this crisis. Um, so the more fentanyl that's out there, the more fentanyl people are consuming, the higher the, the fentanyl concentration is within drugs, um, the more likely people are to, to succumb to a poisoning. We also see um, some data around you know, how the opioid supply as a whole is changing. And and what we see here is that, uh, first of all, like if you go back in time from what even this, uh, these data are showing, uh, fentanyl basically started from nothing before 2014 and grew um, and replaced heroin, like in almost perfect sequence, like heroin fell off a cliff and disappeared from the drug supply pretty much. It now occupies something like 2% of, of the opioid supply. Um, and fentanyl now occupies about seventy-five percent, but it's gone through its own uh, volatility. So as it goes up, um, deaths tend to go up, and as it comes down, deaths tend to come down as well. Incredible. Um, and and like and and so the ideas here now start to move towards um, this idea of rate of change. Um, rate of change is really important because, uh, like, when we're you know when we're going into winter, for example, we we experience. Really, really cold days, and it's hard to adjust to that situation. You know, you forget to wear your coat outside, and, and you're f- and you're freezing your butt off. Um, that rate of change was too much for you to handle that day, and and you weren't ready for it. Uh, we're seeing the same thing in the drug supply. A lot of people are. Um, are experiencing this volatility in what you'd call like drug supply weather almost where fentanyl is like going up and down and up and down in the drug supply and they're not really able to get a hold of of what's happening. So they, you know, if you think of it in a practical way, like a a normal person using um, opioids might do a test shot. They might inject with um, a, a small amount of their supply the first time just to get a sense of how much, you know, how much, how strong it is. Um, But a lot of the time they can't do that or a lot of time they're using alone or a lot of the time the drugs um, are are not homogenous. There there's some fentanyl in one part of the baggie and some and less of it in in another. So you're not it's none none of this is really perfect. And so when you're seeing fentanyl, um, you know, rise and fall and and like increase 15 percent in a single quarter um, across the drug supply, that's going to have huge impacts on how people are handling um, and managing the drug supply. Uh, and when we saw that bear out, you know, so what we're looking at here is in the fourth quarter of 2021, deaths hit their peak. So, 500, um, 550 deaths in Alberta in that quarter, an astonishing number. Um, at the same time that fentanyl increased that quarter uh, by about 15% relative to the quarter before. Um, at that same time, the uh, the drug poisoning rate at SafeWorks was also at its highest, if you remember that. So th- this is all kind of coming together um, as, a, as a pattern that, that we can really understand um, within the drug supply. Benzodiazepines show us a similar thing. I, w- I won't bother showing this one, but this guy here, what we can see is that um, through 2021, benzodiazepines were showing up primarily in the opioid supply about 50, 40, 50% more and more every quarter that we went through. And, and during that time, the deaths were rising really fast. And then and this year, um, as, as benzodiazepines have stopped, just like the fentanyl, as, as benzodiazepines have dropped down or, or stabilized a little bit, the deaths have also stabilized and, and come down a little bit. Um, so they've gone from that peak of 550 in, in the fourth quarter of 2021, down to about 350 in the second quarter of 2022. So, you know, these are still like really outrageous and infuriating and very, very deeply sad numbers of deaths that we're still experiencing, 350 every quarter in this province. Uh, And and that's before we untangle some of those unknown causes of death uh, that I mentioned before, the 3,300 from 2021 that that haven't yet been solved. Um, And so when we look at the, like what the medical examiner sees here, um in in alberta the medical examiner makes a call based on what they see in the toxicity data so you know the toxicology comes through the, the medical examiner will examine that and, and take that in conjunction in with the sort of circumstances of the death and say this was a fentanyl poisoning this person died from fentanyl and so then that becomes uh the, the certified death on the death certificate Oddly, um, despite the fact that everybody at the front lines of this crisis uh, has been screaming louder and louder about benzodiazepines contaminating the drug supply, we're down at we're, we, we, the, we've actually seen that benzodiazepine um, attributed deaths come down over the last few years, which makes no sense. Uh, it, it's not it's not practically realistic, and um, and anybody that's kind of at the front lines of this situation is pretty aware that, that it's not a it's not a real number. And when we look at um, when we look at BC, the chief coroner there, it's a different system. They just they just say here's all the things that were found in the person's body at their time at the time of their death, and uh, benzodiazepines show up in anywhere between thirty and fifty percent of of those patients, um, of those uh, those victims of bad drug policy. So um, I don't think it's as high as that. I don't think the cause of death could be fifty percent for b- benzodiazepines, but it's certainly not three percent. And uh, and we should. Um, we should be, you know, really holding this under the microscope. And I think ensuring that the medical examiner has all the resources they need to make, make these, uh, make these calls and, and to get them done quickly. So people really know what's happening um, month by month and quarter by quarter. And, you know, these data do matter for people that are trying to make uh, do policy advocacy and and make policy decisions, you know, in the absence of, (laughs) of ideology. Um, So, yeah, that that's kind of, that's kind of the key crux of it. Um,
0: I can't thank you enough. I want to have you come back on the show. Maybe we'll do it a a month from now so we can talk further about uh, things as we're going. I just, I hate rushing you. I just think it's really important that we talk about this. There's a lot of folks that Esther Esther Tellfeathers put out a great movie about compassion when it comes to this conversation that I've been trying to tell people to go see it's free now, Um, I think it's the National Film Board has it for free now. So like, I I just wish people would understand the gravity of this issue and that we have a role to play and that our MLA is like, my MLA is one of those new immigrants that know nothing about Canada. You have to like educate him about who Indigenous people are, what hands art is, you know, talking to him about something like this is way too complex for him. So it's just really unfortunate. Like this is who people will vote for, right? It's like this else he wore blue so he must be good enough but that bigger picture that we have to start really holding our MLAs to account on this so uh, even the Reconciliation Action Group like this particular podcast and I'd like for them to see you know we have a a whole bunch of nurses who are trying to work within the education system to get you know anti-racism policies which is incredibly important but out of the over a million people in this in the city how few people are working on actual you know policy change advocacy it, it, it breaks my heart and this is a whole area that i need you know more folks to understand the gravity of it and, and support the work you're doing and so many other folks on the ground doing this work so i appreciate you being on today thank you
1: yeah no thanks so much for having me i think uh you know what you've touched down on there really brings to mind a few really key points you know people that are working on reconciliation people that are working on on defunding police people that want to see abolition of incarceration one of the best places you can work on is drug policy, because that's it's really at the the convergence point of all of those things Um, and. Yeah, I just I can't emphasize that enough. The more I learn about it, the more I learn from folks like you and from Esther Tailfeathers and, and and other people within Indigenous circles, especially. You really you get a sense of uh, of how harmed they have people have been um, across Canada by drug policy. It really is it's one of the it's one of the top tools of white supremacy. And if you want to start dismantling those structures, drug policy is the place uh, is one of the great places to start. Um, you know, I'll also emphasize, you know, people should be demanding more from our addiction treatment, you know, industry. We have a very big industry here in, in Alberta. It's hundreds of millions of dollars get poured into this every year, but we don't get any data back for it. We don't know how many people are going into these programs. We don't know how effective they are. We don't even know how, how they measure success. Um, we don't know how many people leave these programs and go into homelessness or, on, uh, or houselessness. We, we, there's just so many questions um, that, are, that need to be asked, um, and we should be holding our politicians' feet to the fire on this, um, because there's, you know, it's not just the money, it's, it's people people's lives um, really depend on, on good addiction treatment services, um, and, uh, and there are good ways to do this, and there are bad ways to do this, and, and we just don't know which it is right now in Alberta.
0: Yeah, um, and then
1: finally, I'll just add that um, if you know, if you're com- connected to your community association or a business association anywhere in Alberta, um, please do what you can to connect me with them. We're really starting this movement from, from the ground up right now. We have to build the grassroots to, um, uh, to to respond. Communities can do so much to by pulling services into their neighborhoods instead of pushing them away. Um, having you know, having a supervised consumption site in your neighborhood will return huge dividends to your community. Um, You know, forget all the stigmas, forget all the fear, like these, these services are incredible for, they're incredible um, for safety and health of everybody in the neighborhood, not just the folks that are using those sites. And, and again, you know, that when safety is higher, it means you don't need to see police driving around as much. You don't, you know, you don't, you don't need to experience that kind of violence. Um, Well,
0: and every CA has a community associate, a social worker, ironically, and we don't, so we, we almost have the infrastructure to do it, but we just need the political willpower to do it, frankly. Anyway, I would love to continue this conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. And I can't wait to, uh, you know, hopefully we can get a few folks to buy in, you know, um, reconciliation groups, the rest of it because we need to come together and if we can push our politicians with that type of data then that's what will happen and this christian absence based um you know model that they use is just not working so i thank you for coming on
1: thank you michelle it's been great
0: oh i sure hope you enjoyed our special guest today um he's an incredible person an incredible activist the link of course will be in uh this whole conversation. I also want to invite you to the Indigenous Book Club. We have every second month of the, of every second Monday of, of each month. So the next one will be October 10th with Res Rules by Clarence Louis. Uh, then we have the National Inquiry, Chapter 7 and 8, uh, Standoff by uh, Bruce McIver. And of course, if you're actually interested in doing action, you can come either create a committee in a world that makes you, uh, that's easier for you to access, maybe at your work, school, business, whatever that looks like. And or in Calgary, we have a reconciliation action group. Uh, there are other uh, reconciliation committees at churches, all sorts of places. So look for them. I bet you'd be amazed to see that there's some to already join. I'm proud that this podcast has given solutions and included cultural safety training and cultural first aid and all of them to create a safer space for Indigenous people of colour, those with disabilities and 2 Plus. 2 Thank you to authors Cheryl Ward, Chelsea Branch and Alicia Fridkin of heretohelp.bc.ca of what is Indigenous cultural safety and why I should care about it. Their work and those cultural action tools, I've said hundreds of times in my podcast, so please support Indigenous work like that as part of your reconciliation work and settler understandings. I'm just lucky enough to highlight and repeat them here. Internalized racism or lateral violence is another form of violence Indigenous and marginalized folks experienced by the structure of racism imposed on these lands. You can go to racialequitytools.org. They have tons and tons of resources for everybody. But specifically, if you are a person of color, uh, what is internalized racism PDF by Donna uh, K. Bivens is the one that I would recommend. Uh, do's and don'ts for bystander intervention by American Friends Service Committee. So that's at afsc.org. And you can see if you were to even Google it, you would find a lot of things out there. Um, if you see or experience racism, you can report it at acttoendracism.ca or text at eight, or sorry, 587-507-3838. And that's a, an initiative here in Alberta. Indigenous have been talking about issues, sharing our traumas and reports, commissions, and public hearings, just so it can be regularly disregarded. No more honor our words, honor the treaties, listen to politicians and their policies and platforms. If they don't recognize the marginalized in their budget with gender equity plus, uh, if they're cutting violence prevention programs, services, indigenous education, um, uterus health choices, gay straight alliances, lack of human rights for migrants, immigrants, folks with disabilities, know that your vote to that party directly negatively impacts marginalized people demand that they implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action. The recommendations of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, multiple reports about child welfare reform, violence prevention, and now 231 calls to justice in the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, and Two-Spirit. Provincially in Alberta, the Kenny government created 113 pathways to justice, so all you blue-voting bootlickers should be holding your blue MLAs to account on it. Municipally, we have the white goose flying report. Denying these reports is a form of abuse called gaslighting. Our people are experiencing extreme racism in the business, educational, uh, justice, and health institutions, with multiple reports that say the same things. Demand change from election platforms and politicians if they don't understand colonialism, racism, privilege, sexism, gendered violence. They have no business running should be understood by all parties, local politicians, community organizations, sport clubs, etc. Another article that's out there is Truth Before Truth, How Non-Indigenous Canadians Become Allies. There's so many articles out there now, it's actually uh, really pathetic, people don't know. Um, if you're experiencing emotional distress after anything we talked about, you want to talk, you can follow the First Nation and in Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 855-242-3310. It's toll-free, open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can also text at hopeforwellness.ca. More related to missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit, you can also call 844-413-6649. This is a national toll-free 24-7 crisis line providing support for anybody who requires emotional assistance relating to missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Uh, Non-Indigenous... There are distress center lines in your area and a functioning 211, or try uh, 24 seven toll free line 833-456-4566. Uh, 60 Scoops, Indigenous Society of Alberta. You can also go to them at SSISA.ca. Uh The following are two SLGBTQ plus uh, crisis supports. Um, Big shout out to the Trevor Project, obviously, uh, for LGBTQ plus youth 866-844-7386 or lifevoice.ca has a trans lifeline as well 877-330-6366. As you uh, heard today, our (laughs) government is failing us on drug poisoning. So as a result, you know, we ask don't use alone if you can. If you're a uh, First Nation in Alberta, grab those Narcans and give them to organizations like their clan in your area or other street or organizations that you trust that are using um, you know, Narcans, Naloxone kits. But specifically, are they indigenous friendly? Because I know a lot that aren't and I just went to an Awareness Day um, event and there were, there were sneers from some folks there. You know, so I know they're not treating our people well if they can't even hear what I have to say. Um, you can go to the National Overdose Response Service at 888 nors or download the Brave or Doors app. So, you know, at least if you have to use alone, there's, there's some services for you since our governments won't do more about investment into um, addiction and mental health. Violence is my everyday reality. Every indigenous generation has faced it. This is self-care, how I take my power back. Why well, I started my podcast to speak freely, without interruption, without tone police, without leadership shaming, without gaslighting questions, as many people don't really want to hear our opinion, I sure like to tell us their uninformed opinion. You know, our our vigils, our rights are constantly surveilled, and yet nothing gets done about that. And worse, we get the well, those police are just doing their job. Now, of course, the police are doing their job globally, and everybody's outraged, but, you know, like, man, I don't know what to say anymore, folks. I and many other people share microaggressions daily, so it's unacceptable to say them anymore. Learned about being trauma-informed. Folks like me are dealing with internalized racism, gatekeepers, folks that survive off the status quo, people who are in the trauma, and people who stop trying to do the work and deplete personal resources external and internal racism and everyday reality for me. Indigenous people, folks with disabilities, QT, BIPOC, and many others. Masi Cho to my ancestors. My granny, um, yeah, she has cancer, we just found out. So uh, we're getting our shots in hopes that we can go see her, but ultimately she she and my mom are, are what strength looks like through their example. And I wanna thank my dad for teaching me to be strong and blunt. my stout mom for showing me what a proud culture is through her Austrian roots, teaching me to be a proud Calgarian. It is through her, I'm a second generation proud Calgarian. Thank you to my husband, Darcy, Big Buffalo Rock Man. Um, he has produced these podcasts for, for years now, uh, editing these shows, being my husband, childhood friend, father of our child, and my support down the journey of the Red Road. He's witnessed the decades of racism and sexism that we've been together. And to our child, uh, Necklace Woman, who we are blessed to learn from daily and honored you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be a better and stronger person. My hope is my daughter and my family will be proud in the future of us trying to discuss these present day issues in a way that they can understand down the road. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support Thank you, previous donors, for showing your support. If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you. To those who cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com, where you can send in your comments or questions. I also have a YouTube channel that you can go and subscribe, and you can go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcasts and pin posts on social media. And I want to end by giving side-eye to those Calgary rabbits. you're lucky, I'm not trittish. My beautiful cousin once responded, or yet be in my dish. Thank you so much, folks, for listening.